Thank you, Alberto. Good evening, brothers and sisters. Thank you for coming uh, to this first installment of a special four-part Tuesday night, mostly Tuesday night, uh, teaching series. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started and hope some other folks will trickle in and perhaps also join us on Zoom land. Uh, Mark, Isaac, and I planned this series in response to requests from a number of you uh, for more teaching during this season of thinner, shorter, and fewer church gatherings. And a number of you also requested teaching that addresses more directly some of the issues that are dividing our nation and threatening, at least, to divide our church. So we plan to have three sessions, three sessions of teaching. Uh, tonight I plan to teach on how to promote unity amid disagreement. Lord willing, next Monday night at 7, not Tuesday night, but Monday night at 7, our pastor Isaac will deliver a message entitled, Why is it so hard to talk about race? We'll plan to take a week off, and then on October 13th, Mark plans to teach on politics and the local church, and we intend to conclude the series on October 20th with an evening of testimonies and interviews. Uh, our time slot for tonight is 7 to 8.30, since I intend for us to have time for Q&A and open discussion after I finish teaching. Let's open our time in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to gather. We thank you for your spirit in us, enabling us uh, to have your mind and know your mind. And we pray that we would, in this time together, uh, be eager uh, to pursue the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Pray that you'd give me wisdom, pray that you'd give us all wisdom, and that you'd bring good fruit that would last from this time. In Jesus' name, amen. A strong enough earthquake can split the ground. Clashing tectonic plates pull apart from each other, leaving a chasm where there had been a smooth surface. The depth of the chasm and the width of the split depend on the force of the quake. Our nation is undergoing something like an earthquake. The pandemic, protests, and politics are both dividing and revealing divisions that were already present. How is our church holding up in this cultural earthquake? By God's grace, I'd say pretty well. So many of you do such a good job cherishing each other because we all cherish Christ. But we're still feeling the strain. How could we not? I think it's fair to say that many of us are feeling more divided from other members than we normally do. Many of us are struggling to be united or to feel united with other members, and the main cause seems to be disagreement. Not disagreement about the gospel, not disagreement about our church's doctrinal distinctives, or even about the general shape of the Christian life. Instead, it's disagreement about these tectonic forces that are pushing and pulling at our culture. The primary tools God has given us for addressing challenges like this are the regular means of grace he has appointed in Scripture. Gathering regularly to sing, pray, read, preach, and celebrate the ordinances. Discipling relationships where we speak truth and love to one another. These ordinary means can accomplish extraordinary good in extraordinary times. And this series is simply an application and extension of those means of grace, trying to apply God's word more directly to some of the challenges before us. So in this message, I intend to provide an overall framework for promoting and preserving unity when disagreement threatens to divide us. You could say this is a bit of real-time retrofitting while the earthquake is still happening. In this message, I'll offer biblical equipment for peacemaking amid disagreement. Our focus will be on biblical tools that build up and bring together. 
I'll have three points. A peacemaker's portrait, an intellectual tune-up, and a conversation checklist. Three points. A peacemaker's portrait, an intellectual tune-up, and a conversation checklist. And I got a lot to say. Point one, a peacemaker's portrait. One of the New Testament's most frequent exhortations is that we pursue, promote, and protect the unity of our churches. Here are just a few passages out of very many. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Ephesians 4, 1-3, which is echoed in our church covenant. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then Philippians 2, the first four verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What does it mean to be united? Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verse 2, it means having the same mind and love. It means that we agree with each other, and we have affection for each other. By definition, disagreement disrupts the mind side of that equation. So where we encounter disagreement in the church, one appropriate response is to strive for agreement. But often, disagreement also undermines our affection for each other. How can she possibly believe that? Who does he think he is that he can just dismiss other people's views like that? When you take issue with another church member's thinking, pay doubly close attention to your own heart. As the Puritan pastor Thomas Manton observed, ill affections divide as much as ill opinions. So what should you do when disagreement threatens the church's unity? You should make peace. You should promote unity, and when unity is threatened or damaged, make peace. The New Testament exhorts us to be peacemakers again and again. So Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So scripture calls us both to be peaceable and to make peace. The question is how? Peacemaking is difficult, treacherous, and often thankless work. 
Whether you're seeking to make peace with someone who has offended you or someone you may have offended, or whether you're trying to reconcile two parties in a conflict, peacemaking can be perilous. So what kind of person do you need to be to do it? Please turn to James 3. I'll read verses 13 to 18, and then we will focus for the rest of this point on verse 17. That will be our portrait of a peacemaker. James 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what does this demonic so-called wisdom do? It sets people against each other. It tears them apart. It rends and wounds. It embitters and poisons. And in pointed contrast to this anti-wisdom, look again at the list in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is a portrait of a peacemaker. This is wisdom that mends, wisdom that reunites, wisdom that heals and restores and repairs. Let's consider each of its qualities in turn. First, pure. Purity is opposed to double-mindedness and hypocrisy. And it is also opposed to all evil and unrighteousness. Godly wisdom reflects God's own holiness. Godly wisdom is unmixed with any evil. It is not diluted by any worldliness. The wisdom that God grants to those who ask him involves purity of heart and life, purity of word and deed. The pure wisdom God gives us frees us from both error and sin, and it enables us to correct both error and sin without falling into either or making them worse by our efforts. First, pure. Putting purity before all these other considerations also means that we should strive for agreement in the truth. If there is a choice, a hard choice between truth and peace, we should choose truth because the only true peace is going to be founded on the truth. Nevertheless, James continues, first pure, then peaceable. To be peaceable is to both keep peace and make peace. Where peace is, preserve it. Where it is lost, restore it. God's wisdom teaches you neither to wrong others nor avenge wrongs that are done to you. Then it says gentle. To be gentle is to be patient, moderate, and charitable. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs said, it would be a good contest among Christians, one to labor to give no offense and the other to labor to take none. The best men are severe to themselves, tender 
over others. Then open to reason. Meaning, a good reason can change your mind. When's the last time you changed your mind about something significant? When's the last time you changed your mind about a belief you'd held for, say, more than 10 years? Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds, it's kind of implicitly a Christian book, so exercise good judgment, but I would say this book is a masterclass in being open to reason. I would commend it to you. In it, he shares about how a debating society at Yale called the Yale Political Union interviews candidates for leadership positions. Those candidates would be asked, did you ever break someone on the floor? Now, to break on the floor is to change your mind in the middle of the debate with everybody watching, meaning you are one of the uh, participants in the debate and you're actually changing your position because you're convinced in real time that your opponent has the better case. So to break someone on the floor is quite an accomplishment, but the society would also ask of its uh, potential leaders, have you ever broken on the floor? And as one member of the group put it, the correct answer was yes. It wasn't very likely that you'd walked in with the most accurate possible politics, ethics, and meta-ethics. If you hadn't had to jettison some of your ideas several years in, we had our doubts about how honestly and deeply you were engaging in debate. Open to reason. Next, full of mercy and good fruits. If you are wise, you know your own sins and weaknesses. You know how much others have to bear with in you. And you've caught at least a glimpse of how great a mountain of sin God cast into the sea when he justified you. All this will make you merciful toward others. All this will lead to good fruits of love for others. Wisdom makes you quick to overlook an offense because you know how many and how great your own offenses are and how badly you need both God and others to overlook them. Then we have impartial. Impartial. Someone who is impartial is fair-minded, equitable, even-handed, not swayed by how many powerful personalities either hold your view or oppose it. To be impartial is to oppose groupthink and to resist the pull of what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring. To be impartial is to be eager to embrace the truth no matter what face it wears, no matter what accent it sounds in, no matter who is in its corner, and regardless of who stands opposed. And the last one is sincere. You could literally say, without hypocrisy. You can only keep peace and make peace if you speak truth from a true heart. You can only make peace with others if you are at peace yourself. Your peacemaking can only do good if you do it in good faith. Put all this together and put it into practice, and what happens? Verse 18 tells us, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemaking is a work of sowing. It is undertaken in hope, hope of fruit soon and hope of reward in heaven. Peacemaking sows seeds of righteousness because it also uproots the causes of bitterness 
and division. Peacemaking both plants good seeds and pulls up weeds. Peacemaking removes reasons we might have for being angry at each other or alienated from each other. Reasons we might have for scorning or despising one another. Peacemaking helps us see each other as God sees us and love each other as God loves us. The unity of a local church is like fine china, both precious and fragile. The clay mixture has been shaped, fired, and glazed. Its maker has carefully planned and implemented its design. It's both functional and beautiful. But if you drop a bowl, it can easily shatter. And yet broken China, like broken unity in the church, doesn't need to be the end of the story. Maybe you've heard of kintsugi, which is the 400-year-old Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the breaks with lacquer that is dusted or mixed with powdered gold, silver, and platinum. By the practice of kintsugi, a bowl is not only kept from the trash bin, but made more beautiful after being broken. The golden lacquer not only binds, it adorns. The character of a peacemaker that James sketches for us in verse 17 is that golden lacquer. It is who you need to be in order to bind together what has broken apart. The more you embody this portrait of a peacemaker, the more you can turn brokenness and bitterness into beauty. The more the peace of Christ reigns in your own heart and mind and thoughts and actions, the more you can reunite broken pieces of Christ's body, leaving behind golden traces of unity. Point one, a peacemaker's portrait. Point two, an intellectual tune-up, like the kind you get at the mechanic when you bring your car in for its regularly scheduled maintenance. Point two, an intellectual tune-up. James has already begun this work for us in chapter three, verse 17. But you, can you could consider this section an application of that passage that focuses on our minds. So this section will have two parts. I will warn of some intellectual vices to avoid that seem to be especially prevalent today, and then offer a framework for how to classify convictions that can divide Christians and churches. The goal in all this is to love God with our minds, to love our neighbors with our minds, and to think in ways that help rather than hinder unity. In other words, my goal is that as Christians, we would all possess and exemplify intellectual integrity. In this case, the opposite of integrity is not necessarily hypocrisy, but thinking that is structurally unsound. Examples would include beliefs not supported by the evidence, or extreme reactions not warranted by the relative importance of the issue. A building has integrity when load-bearing walls are straight enough and strong enough to bear the weight that rests on them. So how can the same be true of how we think? First part, four vices to avoid. And again, in this section, I'm drawing quite freely on Alan Jacobs' book. Vice number one, beware the pull of the in-group and disgust for the out-group. Beware the pull of the in-group and disgust for the out-group. These are both forms of partiality. Both are condemned by James 3.17. Now, thinking is always a relational activity. 
we think in response to other people's thoughts. And we think about what matters to us and what matters to people who matter to us. But there's a world of difference between thinking with others and letting others think for you. What circles of people do you most want to be accepted by? And how might that desire for acceptance tempt you to compromise your thinking? Here's a question to ask of your in-group, maybe one you belong to or one you want to belong to. Besides your identity as a Christian and as a member of this local church, what other teams do you play for or want to play for? To which tribes do you belong? Whatever those teams or tribes are, how willing are you to disagree with someone who holds power for your side? Do you think that your side is ever wrong about anything? How willing are you to say so publicly? On the other hand, who in our society do you have the least sympathy with? Who do you see as causing more than their fair share of problems for the rest of us, whether in our culture as a whole or in the political sphere or in the local church? What people are just fundamentally wrong? Following Susan Friend Harding's research on fundamentalism, we could call that group your repugnant cultural other. I think that's a useful phrase to add to our collective vocabularies, repugnant cultural other. Do you have one? One among many dangers of having a repugnant cultural other is that we fail to treat those others as human beings, made in God's image, and worthy of a patient and charitable hearing. Instead, we're tempted to dismiss them in disgust. We might not put it ourselves, uh, put it to ourselves quite this baldly, but there can be an undercurrent of thought that goes something like this. If those people think that, it must be wrong. Beware the pull of the in-group and disgust for the out-group. Second, beware of parasitic keywords. Banish all parasitic keywords. Here's what I mean. Parasitic keywords are shorthand terms that substitute for thought and hinder thought. Many hashtags and labels thrown around on social media fulfill this destructive function. One person says, if you don't speak out against this, you're a white supremacist. Another one replies, you're just another social Marxist. If you use a term to describe the position of someone you disagree with, is that a term they use for themselves? It's one useful criterion. Do you and your intellectual opponent agree about what that term means or to whom it should be applied? Is your use of the term based on their explicit statements or on your interpretation of what must be the implications of their views if they reason them out consistently and apply them to this other issue they weren't even talking about? In other words, even as you summarize and label the position of someone you disagree with, are you doing so fairly and charitably? Are you reading their comments in the most honest, favorable light, taking them at their word? The Puritan pastor Thomas Manton warned, a man may err in logic, 
that doth not err in faith. And though he may be urged with the consequences of his opinion, yet he may not be charged with them. You have no reason to infame him with the brats of your own malice. To make any man worse than he is, is the way to disgrace an adversary, not reclaim him. Third, beware of factors that tend to freeze thinking. Beware of factors that tend to freeze thinking. This could be anything from professional ambition, to party loyalty, to family pressure, to job security. As Upton Sinclair famously quipped, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Beware of thinking with everything but your head. As James 3.16 warns, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Fourth, beware of the temptation to instantly form judgments and loudly declare them. Three passages that speak against this. Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers... Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So the first part of our intellectual tune-up was a diagnosis of common pitfalls in our thinking. Places where our thinking sometimes doesn't bear all the weight that it should. But another element of wisdom is distinguishing a more important issue from a less important issue. And knowing what issues are important for what purposes, for what groups, and for what reasons. The Apostle Paul himself works with a distinction like this when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So I want to briefly revisit something that I taught when I preached through John 17 last year. Namely, when it comes to different theological and political and practical matters that Christians will have different convictions about, we need to sort those disagreements into three levels, put them into three buckets. The most helpful brief discussion of this that I've seen is in Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley's book on conscience, pages 85 to 87, from which I quote in the following. First-level issues are central and essential to Christianity. Denying a first-level doctrine like the Trinity or the deity of Christ calls your profession of faith into question. Uh, agreement on these doctrines is necessary to have any kind of Christian fellowship and mutually recognize each other in the faith. Second-level issues create reasonable boundaries between Christians, such as different denominations and local churches. Where disagreement on areas like baptism and church government persists, Different local churches and denominations rightly and necessarily follow. Third-level issues are disputable matters, often called matters of indifference or matters of conscience. Not because they don't matter at all, 
but because they can be indifferent with regard to whether we have fellowship with each other, whether we share the Lord's Supper together, how we judge someone's profession of faith. This, this matter is not pertinent to recognizing someone as a Christian or being in the local church together. Therefore, it's given that kind of label. It's not meant to be pejorative. Again, these issues aren't necessarily unimportant, but members of the same church should be able to disagree on these issues and still have close fellowship with each other. To put names on these three tiers, we could call tier one gospel doctrine, tier two gospel polity, and tier three everything else. Again, the first two tiers are the message we proclaim and the structure that the ordinances of the church form us into. Gospel preaching creates gospel people, tier one, who form a gospel polity, tier two. So, uh, we need to agree about the doctrines at the heart of the gospel and doctrines that directly undergird or unpack the gospel in order to have a stable witness as a local church together. And we also need to agree about the shape that a church takes. Who should be baptized? Who is authorized to administer and partake of the Lord's Supper? What are our responsibilities to and for each other as church members? Those are all questions we need practical agreement on in order to form a church. So anytime you disagree with another church member, ask, where does this disagreement fit? What category does it belong in? Different doctrines, opinions, convictions, and practices possess different weight. They're like different types of luggage you could take on an airplane. If you have a big suitcase, you have to check it at the ticket counter, and if it weighs over 50 pounds, you have to pay an arm and a leg to get it on the plane. Then you might have a carry-on bag that you can bring up to the plane with you, but if the flight's overbooked, too full, you might have to check it at the gates, right? And even then, it has to fit within the little dimensions they give you in order that it can fit in the overhead compartment. And then finally, you have your personal item that you can just stash under the seat in front of you. Different size and weight of luggage fits in different slots. My point is, some doctrines, practices, and convictions are heavy, checked luggage, and some are personal items you can stash under your seat. Wisdom requires knowing the difference. And wisdom requires treating those different doctrines according to their relative weight. The Apostle Paul recognized this distinction when he wrote in Romans 14:5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, he's not insisting on agreement. Implicitly, Paul's working here in Romans 14 with a framework of issues that Christians can disagree about and remain members of the same church. That's why he does not press for uniformity of opinion. We'll come back to that. Instead of seeking to convince one side in the dispute that they were wrong, Paul insists that this is a tolerable disagreement. It is a livable difference. It is a division of opinion that does not need to divide the church. Again, it takes wisdom to know which belief goes in which category. But the vast majority of issues that threaten to divide any local church are third-level issues. They are, or should be, livable differences. And if you are arguing over a livable difference, that imposes certain obligations certain restrictions on your argument. If this disagreement need not divide church members from each other, are you needlessly dividing church members from each other by the way you conduct the disagreement? 
That question will be the main focus of our third point. Point three, a conversation checklist. A conversation checklist. So let's say you're in a conversation with another church member about one of the endless number of issues that so many of us disagree about. Could be how environmental ethics play into what foods you choose to eat or not eat. It could be how a president's ability to nominate federal and Supreme Court justices factors into how you decide which candidate to vote for. The list is endless. How should you conduct yourself in any of those conversations? What should you be taking into account before, during, and after? Here are eight questions to consider. And I believe only one of my questions will have subpoints. Number one, how important is this issue? In Romans, how, number one, how important is this issue? In Romans 14, Paul is addressing some believers who were convinced that Old Covenant food laws still bound believers, and some who were convinced that they didn't. Paul himself had a stance on the issue, as we'll see. But one of his key aims was to help both sides see that matters far more important than food were at stake. Consider Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here, Paul is challenging both parties to consider what is most important and to frame their conversation and conduct in a way that fits with and follows from what is most important. So ask yourself, how important is this issue? How important is it in itself and in its intrinsic consequences? How important is it relative to the gospel? In the way I communicate about this third tier issue, am I leaving daylight between this issue's importance and the gospel's importance? Am I speaking about this matter in a way that makes it plain to anyone who's paying attention that I know the gospel is more important? Number two, how sure am I of my position? How sure am I of my position? How confident are you that you're right? What evidence is your judgment based on? How much of that evidence is in the Bible? And how much of that evidence comes from analysis of the world outside the Bible? How comprehensive is your assessment of the evidence? How many people who have studied the evidence as much or more than you have came to the opposite conclusion? Are you as confident of your position on, say, single-issue voting as you are of the doctrine of the Trinity? Are you as confident of your stance on U.S. foreign policy as you are on justification by faith alone? Are you as confident about the necessary means for successfully righting racial injustices as you are about the exclusivity of Christ? Again, the first step here is to recognize that you likely do, and if not, you should, have differing levels of certainty about different convictions you hold. Some are far more likely to be proved wrong than others. You're far more likely to change your mind about some than about others. 
And again, how you speak about those more disputable issues should make it plain that you are less certain of your stance on them than you are of the good news of Christ. Number three, can reasonable Christians disagree? Can reasonable Christians disagree? Asking this question helps lower the stakes. It helps take the tension out of the room. It means that even if at the end of the conversation we still disagree, we can recognize each other not only as brothers and sisters, but as brothers and sisters with properly functioning rational faculties. Right? A fundamental assessment of who the other person is is not at stake here. Can you readily understand how someone who trusts in Christ and walks in holiness and is self-consciously striving to submit to the authority of Scripture could become convinced, for instance, that the infant children of believers should be baptized? I can. I can see how they get there. I disagree. But I trust that my Reformed Presbyterian brothers and sisters are doing their best to submit to Scripture. I see the arguments they're making. I feel some force to them, but I don't find them persuasive. Again, that's a second level, not a third level issue, because we need to agree about who should be baptized and what counts as baptism in order to have a local church together. But here's my point. How large is your store of intellectual sympathy? Can you put down the megaphone long enough to hop into somebody else's view? Settle into it. Try it on. And take a good look around from the inside. Number four. Can we disagree about this and be members of the same church? Can we disagree about this and be members of the same church? Again, the two things we need to agree on to form a church are gospel doctrine and gospel polity. There's some fuzziness and kind of loose ends around the edges, but those are the two big categories, gospel doctrine and gospel polity. And if you consider our church a statement of faith, nearly every article fits pretty well into one of those two categories, at least by implication. Similarly, the essence of our ethical obligations to Christ and each other is distilled in our church covenant. Any unrepentant sin or unrepentant theological error for which we would in principle remove a member as an act of discipline can be traced back, at least by implication, to violating something in our statement of faith or church covenant. Beyond those two categories, gospel doctrine, gospel polity, lie vast mountain ranges of theological positions, political convictions, practical preferences, and much, much more that need not trouble our unity. So what can you disagree about and remain members of the same church? The more items you can place in that category, the easier it is to preserve and promote unity. Here's another way to put the question. Can I contentedly remain a member of this church where other members disagree with me about this issue? Number five, am I prizing the argument above the person? Am I prizing the argument above the person? To win the argument but lose the person is easy, futile, and it torpedoes the church's unity. To win the argument but lose the person is to lose far more than you think you've gained. What does it profit a man to score all the rhetorical points in the world, but estrange his brother's soul? 
The book of Proverbs is filled with counsel about how to frame your words to fit the need of the moment and the state of the person you're speaking with. Here are just three. Proverbs 15, 23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Proverbs 25, 15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Your voice only reaches so far. Your social media account only has so many followers. Your dialogue partner only has so much patience. But the truth has many more resources at its disposal besides you. Let the other person get the last word. Find that person's threshold and stop well short of it. You may not win the argument. But you might plant seeds of truth that your friendship can continue to water. If a friendship is going to die, don't be the one to kill it. Live to love another day. And positively, and I need to do this more myself, positively, One surefire way to prize the person above the argument is to pray for them. Number six, am I prizing the issue above the unity of the church? Turn with me to Romans 14, please. Sherlock Holmes famously noticed the dog that didn't bark. If the dog didn't bark, it must have known the person who crept through the yard in the middle of the night. Aha, mystery solved. The point is that sometimes a silence is eloquent or even deafening. And I think Romans 14 to 15 contains one of the most eloquent silences in all of Scripture. Again, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the disputed issue these chapters address is whether ceremonial laws from the Old Covenant, such as food regulations, are binding on New Covenant believers. Now, Paul has a position on the issue. He is not undecided or, uh, you know, refraining from all judgment. Look at verse 14, chapter 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So there's Paul's position, but here's the silence. In a discussion that takes up a chapter and a half, He offers not a single argument in support of his position. He spends exactly zero words seeking to persuade people who disagree with him. His sole concern is the unity of the Christians in Rome. His sole concern is to help Christians with differently calibrated consciences live in harmony. His aim is 0% polemical persuasion and 100% pastoral peacemaking. So make like Paul and prize the unity of the church above every single one of your pet issues. Make like Paul and help other Christians love through disagreement. Make like Paul and make space in your affections for Christians who disagree with you and who keep disagreeing with you. Number seven, is this the right time and place for this conversation. 
is this the right time and place for this conversation? This is the point that will have subpoints. You'll hear them. This is a good question. In fact, it's an excellent question. It has endless applications. But here, I'll focus on just one, social media. Consider Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This verse is a one-sentence summary of biblical communication. It teaches us to say the right words, in the right way, at the right time, for the right reasons. It is exceedingly difficult to fulfill Ephesians 4.29 on social media, and especially in social media debates. Social media are not a neutral field of communication. Instead, social media is a slope that tilts steeply toward conflict. That's how the algorithms work. What makes it so hard to fulfill Ephesians 4.29 on social media? Here, briefly, are four factors. I could give many more, but I'm mindful of the hour. Four factors. First, the online disinhibition effect. The online disinhibition effect. Another useful phrase to add to our cultural lexicon. You say things online that you would never say face-to-face. You say things online far more severely than you would say them face-to-face. All sorts of normal caution and reserve and sensitivity and sympathy go right out the window when you're talking to a box on the screen, as opposed to a flesh-and-blood human being. Second, on social media, there are no gradients of intimacy. No gradients of intimacy. Meaning, there's no difference between living room, dining room, front porch, avenue, public gathering. It's all one big blob. You don't know who you're talking to or who's listening in. If you want a humorous take on this, you can look up the meme sea lion social media. Find a little cartoon. You'll find out about the sea lion who, let's just say, inserts himself into many conversations demanding a fair hearing of his views. You don't know who you're talking to or who's listening in. You often have little control over who hears and who responds. Ephesians 4.29 urges us to speak as fits the occasion, but on social media there is no occasion. Posting on social media can be like shooting off fireworks in a crowd. You might not intend to set anyone on fire, But there's a good chance someone will be ignited by one of your projectiles. You speak differently in a room with a few dozen people in a public place than you do with a friend one-to-one in your living room. Some people treat social media like it's a living room, when really it's more like an endlessly shape-shifting mob clustering around whoever has the loudest megaphone. Third, related to this, In terms of who sees what you say and how they respond to it, social media is full of unknown unknowns, to borrow a phrase. If I say something right now that you're skeptical of, or maybe even offended by, I get a little bit of real-time feedback. 
I can see even through the mask. I can catch a glimpse of how you're taking in what I'm saying. But on social media, you are often, to a large extent, ignorant of who sees what you say, who disagrees with what you say, and who is offended by what you say. Those algorithms promote posts. People who are not your followers see them. Others who never say anything see it and go away with all sorts of reactions. You could be smashing China all over the place without ever hearing the shattering or stepping on the shards. You could be spending down capital with others without any clue that that money is leaving your account as you speak. A friendship could be losing altitude rapidly, heading toward a crash, and you won't know until it's too late. Fourth and finally, social media tempts you to adopt the role of a teacher without necessarily having the training or submitting to any form of accountability. In other words, social media gives everyone a megaphone. More traditional media, like, say, sermons, or classroom lectures, or printing books, or magazines, or newspapers, all these require someone to pass through quality control gatekeepers. Elders and a congregation vet a pastor. A principal or dean interviews a potential teacher. Editors and fact-checkers comb over a reporter's piece before it goes to print. But on social media, all you have to do is answer that free, constantly beckoning invitation. What's on your mind, Bobby? Social media tempts us to disregard two of the book of James' most sobering warnings about our speech. Back to James 1.19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And James 3, 1 to 2, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So before you hit post, Pause, pray, and ask, is this the right time and place for this conversation? Eighth, finally, and I'll close with this. How can I disagree in such a way that we leave more unified, not less? How can I disagree in such a way that we leave more unified, not less? Are you a delight to disagree with. That might sound impossible. That might sound like an oxymoron. But I'm, I can think of more than one person I know well whom it is a positive pleasure to disagree with. Why? Because they're so gentle and gracious, so charitable and kind, that the disagreement only serves to highlight, to showcase the depth of their love for you and the depth of their commitment to Christ whom we confess together. One marvelous example of this kind of 
delightful disagreement has been highlighted for many of us, the relationship that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia had. So famous they made a Broadway opera out of it. Uh, I was combing through some stories and things, looking for the right quote. I'll leave it to you to kind of learn that story. But here's another famous example uh, of someone who is famously easy to disagree with. It's C.S. Lewis. Uh, One former student of his, George Watson, who went on to be his colleague at Cambridge, uh, said this of Lewis decades after his death, paying tribute. The best teacher I ever had, and the best colleague. He did not ask or expect me to share his convictions. His manner might be described as politely merciless. His twin passions by then, meaning late in his life, apart from literature itself, were people and arguments, but he did not often make the mistake of confusing them. He had vigor without venom. He was generous. If I were ever to be asked what I learned from him, that would be my reply. The art of disagreement. Let's pray that God would teach us this art and help us learn it together in our remaining time. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would teach us the art of disagreement, Uh, not merely to be good citizens, uh, not merely to avoid conflict, uh, but precisely as Paul instructed the church in Rome, the, the Christians in Rome, precisely so that we might welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for your glory. We pray that we would not in any way seek to minimize or diminish the truth and the importance of holding fast to all that you have revealed. We pray you would grow us all in charity, in patience, in gentleness, in meekness, uh, in fulfilling this work of peacemaking. Pray that you give us a profitable conversation now as we apply and discuss and test these things by your scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.